Okay, is it not true that it is the most basic elements of the Christian faith that we find the most difficult? It is the essential things, isn't it? The uh, fundamental elements of walking with Jesus Christ that we struggle with the most. Wouldn't you agree with that? Like, we're actually okay when it comes to the elaborate things in, in the church. Uh, let's take an example. Let's say, for instance, that we at LCPC were to organize a big all singing and dancing conference here in the center of London. We'd invite all the big names, you know, the famous sort of celebrity preachers, maybe from the States, where we'd invite them here. We'd organize big conference. There would be enthusiasm for this. Wouldn't there? Amongst ourselves in the congregation, we would have volunteers to host these big names. We'd have volunteers for the, the stewarding, for the publicity. We'd be excited about that. But what about the funda- fundamental, ordinary elements of the Christian faith? Like what about our own daily studying of the Bible? What about that? Or what about our own seeking of God in prayer? It's kind of a different story, isn't it? Isn't it the basic things? Isn't it the ordinary things that we actually find ourselves struggling with the most? Well, this morning in Mark chapter 11, we come to what is, I think, a massive moment uh, for the people of God. It's a moment where the way that God's people approach him, it changes... And it changes for forever and ever and ever. And uh, what I want us to do is focus, yes, on what this Mark, Mark 11 is going to mean for how you and I worship God. Of course, we have to focus on that. But I think actually more specifically what I want us to do is focus on what this all means for how you, me, this church, how we pray for what Mark 11 and these changes mean for how it is that you and I approach God and do so in prayer. Okay? So, I suggest that we turn back to Mark 11, to have it in front of us, and also that we notice, first of all, indignation at the place of prayer. There is indignation here at the place of prayer. What do I mean? Okay, I, I've said that this section is significant, really is a significant moment in Mark's gospel. What I think I should add to that is that this is a section that has proved very problematic for a lot of people. It's really problematic for, for many people throughout the years. Maybe, uh, yeah, maybe you see what I mean if you think about the first section and what happens right at the start of the section. What happens? Jesus, do you see how problematic it is? Jesus goes to a fig tree. We're told that the fig tree is out of season. And he's expecting to find fruit on it out of season. And when he doesn't find fruit, what does he do? He curses the tree and he causes it to wither. Like you can see maybe, can't you, how uh, that's problematic. Some people say that Jesus is just here. He's being irrational. I read somebody this week who said that this is an example of Jesus' vindictive fury. Right? People struggle with this. Now, hopefully, 
Uh, we in here are agreed, probably not Jesus' vindictive fury, okay? We're probably agreed on that. But what is he doing with this tree? What's he doing? Why is he cursing the fig tree? There are a couple of things that you need to bear in mind if we're going to understand this. First is how the Old Testament prophets used to work. So (laughs) what was our first reading this morning? Much to poor Adrian's embarrassment, it was... uh, Do you see why I didn't do that reading this morning? It was Isaiah chapter 20, where what happened? Isaiah the prophet, he strips down and he walks around naked. Why? As a way of prophesying against Egypt. Now wait, do you see the relevance? Sometimes the men of God didn't just declare a message of judgment. What did they do sometimes? The men of God, they actually acted out a message of judgment from God. And do you see that that's what's happening here, Mark 11? That's what Jesus is doing. This is Jesus. It's an enacted prophecy of judgment. So at least we know that, okay? It's an enacted prophecy of judgment. Second thing that we have to bear in mind is this. What is called Mark's sandwich technique. Do you remember this from the start of the sermon series about (laughs) about five years ago? But do you remember Mark's sandwich technique? It's not how he, not a new method for how he eats a roll or anything like that. The sandwich technique, what was that? Mark often begins a story in his gospel. But before he ends the story, he inserts another account in the middle to explain what's going on. You see the sort of meat in the sandwich. And do you see, if you look at your page, that's what he does here. Do you see it? Look at this. He begins the story of the fig tree, but before he ends the story of the fig tree in verse 20, what does he place in the middle? There's this explanatory account, an account of Jesus clearing the temple. That explains the fig tree. So the question you ask, the question that I ask is obvious, isn't it? How does Jesus clearing the temple courts, how does that explain the fig tree? Let's think of it like this. I don't know if you've got uh, one of these kids' storybook Bibles kicking around at home. Do you? And maybe if you don't have it now, maybe you've grown of it. Maybe uh, you used to have. You know what I'm talking about at least, don't you? You know, the Lion Children's Bible or maybe the Jesus Storybook Bible, something like, you know? Uh, and I'm not knocking these. Not, that's not what we've got them. We use them at home. Not knocking it. But I'm sure you would agree with me that sometimes these books, they actually give us a false impression about certain Bible stories. Like, for instance, take what we're dealing with here. Now, what are we dealing with? What do we have to have in mind? Jesus clearing the temple. Do you see how it might get, like, you know, think about a kid's storybook Bible. How would it portray Jesus clearing the temple? What would you have? What would the picture be? There'd be a drawing of Jesus, probably. And uh, he would look angry. What else would you have in the kid's Bible? You might have at most like four or five people in the picture, wouldn't you? You'd have some guy changing money, some guy maybe selling some pigeons and 
that would be, like that would be your scene, wouldn't it? Maybe like four guys, five guys top. What I need you to appreciate is how wrong that is. Like if we're going to understand this, you've got to appreciate the vast scale. Like think, first of all, of the size of the area that we're dealing with. See this temple clearing? Most likely it took place in what was called the court of the Gentiles. And you've got to believe me when I say to you, the court of the Gentiles was just massive. Like it was about 500 yards long. Can you picture that? And about 400 yards wide. I read this week and I couldn't quite get my head around it. But the court of the temple, this courtyard, the court of the Gentiles, it covered an area of approximately, wait for this, 35 acres. Like, do you see that this area before us here is massive? Then you've got to think about the amount of people that would have been there at the time. Because what time of year is this happening? Do you remember from last week? It's Passover time where literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people would all have descended upon Jerusalem and they'd all be focused on the temple. Do you see what I'm saying? Before us, there are just multitudes of thousands of people in this courtyard. And then, what are they doing? Did you see what we were told? Some people are changing money. Uh, Yeah, why? Exchanging Roman coin for shekels in order to pay the temple tax. So you've got loads of people doing that, the noise from the money, right? Then what else have you got? You've got people buying animals. You've got loads of people buying birds. Why? To make sacrifices now and later on. Do you get a sense of the, the, the chaos of all of the noise from the birds and the bartering, the sight of all the blood on the ground from the sacrifices? Do you see? This is utter chaos before us. And then what do you see? Then you turn your head and you see our Lord enter into this courtyard. And what does he do? Friends, righteously and perfectly, he loses his rag. He sees this and he begins to overturn tables and he is here shouting at people and he's kicking these merchants and their money lenders. He's kicking them out of the courtyard and I ask you the simple question, why? Why is Jesus so angry? What do you see? Well, yes, it's to do with extortion, these money lenders taking more than their cup, but it's bigger than that because I'm asking you, where are we? We're in the court of the Gentiles. Do you see, this was supposed to be a place of prayer. This is where converts from all of the surrounding areas would come together and would gather together to worship God. This was supposed to be a place of awe. This was supposed to be a place of reverence. And it's been turned into this, this chaotic, frenzied, bizarre. So no wonder Jesus does what he does. No wonder Jesus quotes Isaiah, Jeremiah, and says, My house shall be called a place of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Do you see it? Do you see the chaos? If so, now, surely you see the meaning of the fig tree. 
Because you must understand that the fig tree was a national emblem of Israel. Is this here not a message of that nation's superficiality? I mean, think of it. Jesus approaches the fig tree, and what were you told? You were told that it was in leaf. Do you see? It looked great, the fig tree. It looked heavy, but on closer inspection, there is no fruit. And is that not what Jesus is saying here of the people of Israel? Israel looks today at Passover time, it looked in great shape, didn't it? It looked healthy, all of these people, the, the temple at the center of community life. And yet, on closer inspection, what has Jesus found? He's found that there is no spiritual fruit in the temple for our great God to enjoy. Friends, you see, don't you, the message of the fig tree? This is Jesus because of the faithlessness of Israel. This is him declaring the dissolving of the very temple itself. Before you in Mark 11, you have indignation at the place of prayer. Second, though, we see here inauguration of a people of prayer. Inauguration of a people of prayer. Now, I think everyone in here just now is, uh, knows full well that the world is going through a bit of an upcycling craze at the moment, isn't it? Uh, the world through Pinterest or, or Facebook or whatever it might be, people are going mad for reusing old things for new purposes, for upcycling. Maybe they'll take an old dress or an old, yeah, an old dress and they'll maybe uh, turn it into a new skirt and they'll upcycle the old dress or maybe it'll be something basic like they'll take a lemon and instead of just using it for cooking, they'll also use it to clean. Okay, I don't know. That's obviously not the voice of experience there. Uh, but the world's going mad for upcycling at the moment. Well, isn't that not what we see in Mark chapter 11? With reference, reverence, is, is it not the fact that Jesus upcycles? Because he's used the fig tree. But as we move on in this chapter, do we not find that he uses it again? And maybe you can see how it works and unfolds. So it gets to the next day. Okay, dawn comes and, and the disciples and Jesus are now walking back towards Jerusalem. And they walk past the fig tree again, don't they? And, and what happens is scripture focuses you in on Peter's reaction alone. And do you see what it is? He looks at this fig tree and Peter just loses his mind. Like he's amazed because he remembers yesterday... He remembers that, wait a minute, Jesus cursed this fig tree. Now he looks at it and it's withered to nothing. Like the fig tree is just, it's dead, it's coming to nothing. And so Peter is just stunned, man. Like he's amazed, the power of God, the power of God to be able to speak to the tree. And this happens? So what does Jesus do? He reuses the tree. He now instructs Peter, in fact, do you know what, let me change it. He now instructs you and I, the church, 
how we can appropriate this sort of awe-inspiring power of God. How we can have, as a church, the same sort of power that withers trees. We want that, don't we? So what does he say? Two things. First, you'll note that Jesus calls for faith in prayer. Look with me at verse 23. Verse 23. He calls for faith in prayer. I'll give you a second to find verse 23. calls for faith and prayer. Look what he says. He says, truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and, look at those next words, does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he will say will come to pass, it will be done for him. Keep going. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, what's the next word? Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Do you, do you see? Do you see what it is that we're being told? We're being told that a lack of trust in God is a great obstacle to prayer. That when we pray, you and I are to believe. Now, listen to me. That that if we lack faith, that it's going to be one of the very first things that we ask for from God in prayer. Because Jesus is saying, you want this sort of power that can wither fig trees. You pray with faith. So that's the first of the two things. The next thing he says, though, is he calls for, not faith, but forgiveness in prayer. Now, come on, let's look at it. Verse 25. Give you a second. Verse 25. He says, whenever you stand praying, what's the command? Forgive if you have anything against anyone. Why? So that your Father also in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. You see the message there, don't you? He's saying that bitterness, too, is a great obstacle. That if you and I are holding something against somebody else in our hearts, I think quite simply he's saying that God is less likely to answer our prayers. He's less likely to forgive us. And, and maybe you think, well, that sounds awfully controversial, doesn't it? But is it not even what you were taught in the Lord's Prayer itself? I'm pretty sure most of us in here were taught the Lord's Prayer, either at school or Sunday school and church. But what are you commanded to do in the Lord's Prayer? We ask for forgiveness in the Lord's Prayer, don't we? But how? As we forgive those who trespass against us. Like, do you see what Jesus is saying here? Like, we want this power. Peter wants this power. The, the power of wither, the power of God. How do we appropriate? Jesus says, you pray with faith and you pray with forgiveness. There is something else here, though. Uh, on this past Thursday afternoon, just a couple of days ago, um, I, I prayed twice in close succession, and it was very different. Like the first time that I prayed, I was at home um, in the house, the manse in Woodford, and I walked into the study, and I closed the door behind me, just me in that study, and I've got a chest, like a, a, a small table in the study, 
And so I knelt at that uh, table and I prayed. So you can see the scene. It is me and I'm praying in private. Is me God? But then I finished praying and I looked at my watch. <laughs> I'm running a bit late. So I, I jumped up, left the house. Uh, I got on the tube and I came here to this building for the prayer meeting. Okay, where we gathered through in this room at the back on Thursday. And what did I do? I prayed again, but it was different. I was praying this time in the company of my uh, brothers and sisters. I was praying with my family of faith. Do you see the point that I'm making here? There really are almost two types of prayer, aren't there? There's this idea of this personal, private devotion with God. But there's also a different idea, isn't there? There's this idea of corporate prayer. Prayer with the church. Church prayer, right? We wonder if you see that it is the second of those. This idea of corporate prayer that Jesus has in view in Mark chapter 11. Not private prayer, corporate prayer. Did you notice that? Did you notice he speaks of a man when a man stands to pray? The posture that a Jew would have in public prayer. Then throughout this section, he's also using the plural term right the way throughout the section. He's thinking about church prayer, corporate prayer, public prayer. And so I ask you this. Do you see the big picture of Mark 11? If nothing else... Do you see what connects the temple clearing with the instructions Jesus is giving his church here? Do you see what's happening here? At this very moment in Mark chapter 11, Jesus is turning away from one praying community and he is creating something new. This is a seismic moment. This is a massive moment in the gospel. At this very point, he is turning away from that faithless praying community of the temple and he is turning towards those who would go on to become the praying people of the new testament church is that moment do you see it well if you see that maybe you also see what it is that jesus christ wants from you and me in this congregation this morning because you understand don't you that you and i are part of this New Testament church, this new praying community. So what does he want from London City Presbyterian Church? What what would you say? Is it not that he wants the corporate prayerfulness of the congregation? Isn't that what Jesus wants? I mean, he surely from this, he desires that we are nothing like that temple community. He wants us, he wants you and I to be regularly faithfully, enthusiastically coming together, gathering together to seek our gods and pray. He wants the corporate prayerfulness of London City Presbyterian Church. So I I stand before you and I ask, what do we do in response to that? Do we ignore it? Or do we endeavor to turn over a new leaf in the corporate prayer life of this congregation? Will we not do that? Because surely as you sit in this room just now, you can see why we've got to do it. You surely see from Mark 11, wait a minute, you see what's to be gained. What can happen if we gather together in faith and forgiveness and we pray? What happens? You see? 
we can move mountains. Like if we gather together as a congregation and pray, and we do so sincerely, and we do so through Christ, we do so with faith forgiveness. Do you know what? See this up here? That can be jam-packed. Oh, people sitting along here, people sitting along there, people standing at the back. This place can be utterly full and full of people who have been won for Christ through the amazing grace of Almighty God. In Mark chapter 11, there's indignation, but ah, there is this inauguration of a praying people, a people of prayer. So indignation, inauguration, the third thing that we see here is insight into the price of prayer. Insight into the price of prayer. Um, Some people, more than others, are logically minded human beings, aren't they? Uh, Some people are really spontaneous and impulsive. Other people, though, are much more rationally minded, aren't they? They're much more logical and they like things very much clearly set, clearly reasoned out. Is that you? I see some people smiling. Well, if you are one of these logically minded people, then perhaps you see the question the disciples would have been asking at the end of this portion of scripture. Now think about it. Jesus has dissolved the temple. He's declared the coming, dissolving of the temple. So he's done that. Then he's instructed them about prayer. What's the question they're asking? How do we pray? I mean, the temple was the place where they had their sin dealt with. The temple was the place where God dwelt amongst his people. So, if the temple's dissolved, how are we going to get access to God? How is God going to hear our prayers? The temple's dissolved. How are we going to pray? You see the question, don't you? Well, in this section of scripture, I think we get a hint of what is going to come in the next few days in Jerusalem. I want you to look at it. There's a horrible phrase here. In verse 18. Oh, it's horrible. We're told that after Jesus, he's in the temple court, the court of the Gentiles, and he's cleaning the temple. Do you see what said that the chief priests, they don't only see, not only see what's happening. Look at that. They sought a way to destroy him. Isn't it? Don't you find, isn't that chilling? They, they sought a way to destroy him. And, and you know how that comes about. They have him arrested. They have him sentenced. They, they put him through that mock trial. They have him, now remember, righteous man, innocent of all the charges. They have him sentenced to death. And how? Now you ponder it. Irony of it. They have Jesus himself hanged from a cursed tree. But what happens at the moment of his death? You know the story. You know exactly the story, don't you? What happens at the moment of his death? Upon the cross, his heart's 
stops. And our Lord, his head hangs limp and he is dead. And at that very moment, a few steps away from the court of the Gentiles, that great, huge, thick curtain that separated the rest of the temple from the most holy place, what happens to it? You see, it tears. It tears, but it doesn't tear partially, does it? A tear does not appear in that tent, that veil. The whole great curtain itself, it rips, it's ruined, it's rent, it tears from top to toe, destroyed that curtain. And you see in that, don't you, the significance of Jesus' death. Because of the cross, friends, there was no more need for what? For the temple tax. There was now, because of the cross, no more need for all of these animals and sacrifices. Why? Because look at the cross. Now, the atoning price had been paid. You see, no more need for the temple tax. Now, because of the cross, look, the true Passover lamb had been slain. Do you see what I am saying to you now forevermore? It was Jesus who'd become the place of Access to God, not the temple. Jesus, the access point to God. Now, even us, even you and I, Gentiles, we could have this precious, intimate access to God through the blood of His eternally beloved Son. It is Jesus who is the access to the throne room of our God. And so I ask you this morning, do you have that access? I mean, are you a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore today living in the permanent presence of Yahweh? Is that you? If, if, If not, surely you want that this morning. But if it is you, then don't you cherish anew this wonderful intimacy you have with God? Don't you value and cherish prayer? I mean, come on, through Christ, you and I, at any point, at any time, anywhere, we can speak to our God. Isn't it beautiful? But I am with this. You can see in front of me just now that today is our communion service. And the Christians in here today, in a moment or two, what we're going to do is we're going to gather at the table of the Lord God Almighty. Well, I wonder if you would do this with me today, if you're a Christian. At the table, would you ponder and remember the great cost at which this privilege of prayer was bought? Would you at the table close your eyes, bow your head, meditate upon the great price that the Lord Jesus Christ has had to pay? The Puritan, a man called John Preston, he said this. He said, prayer is a privilege. But it is a privilege that has been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Do you see it? You're able to pray 
how? How can we possibly speak to God? How can we possibly pray? We can pray because just as the blood of those animals flowed on the floor of that court in the temple, so on the eve of the Passover, the blood of our Savior, it flowed. The blood of our Savior, it merged with the earth outside Jerusalem. And why? All for you. Like all, all for the church, all that we might have today, that perfect, beautiful, intimate access with our holy triune God. You're with me when I say what glory, aren't you? You're with me when I say what amazing grace. Let's pray.